Everybody else, I invite you to turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Can y'all say Thessalonians? Thessalonians, wonderful, wonderful. You're going to hear that word a few more times this evening because we're in a series looking at one of the earliest letters ever sent that we have here on our New Testament. It was a letter that was written to a young church in the thriving big city of Thessalonica. Okay, y'all say Thessalonica. Yes, it's a mouthful, so we're going to get a lot of practice this evening. Paul wrote this letter to a young church that was kind of going through it. How many of y'all have gone through it? I'm looking down at my shoes at the moment. They are still wet. We even physically just went through it in the rain, and I can tell who was here at what time depending on your saturation level. There was a quick break for the early birds, so those who have ears to hear, you know, I'm just saying, God loves people who come early to church. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe that's just an Adam thing. I don't know. But it's so good to see you. Um, We are people who are not immune to worry. And Paul, one of the most amazing followers of Jesus the world has ever known, who wrote a good chunk of this book we call the Bible, was not immune to worry and fear either. So tonight we're going to be looking at a long chunk in this letter. And we're going to be seeing how we can turn worry into prayer. Turning worry into prayer. Worry is the easy part. It's turning it into prayer that takes some practice. And that's what we're going to see as an example this evening in this letter to the first excuse me, to the Thessalonian church. Paul wrote this letter because they were going through it, and he said you got to stay strong in the midst of opposition. Then another theme that we're going to be seeing the next Thessalonian talk we're going to do, he says stay holy. Now holy is a church word that just means separate, different. And he's going to say stay holy because you're swimming upstream in a city and a culture that is very different from Jesus. Do you live in a city and a culture that is very different from the way of Jesus? Shake your heads, yes. Even if you don't know Jesus, you know that Jesus said things like, love your neighbor as yourself. You've been on Facebook and see that happening? I haven't. You see a culture that is at odds with Jesus. He says, stay holy, keep swimming upstream in the way of Jesus. A third big theme is to stay awake, keep your eyes open. Jesus is going to return and renew all things. So stay alert, stay woke, stay awake. The fourth thing we're going to see at the end of our series, the end of this letter, is another stay reminder, and that's to stay together. We believe in this church, what we see in every church in the history of Christianity, that we're better together than we are alone. We're better together than we are alone. Why? Because when I worry, I need y'all to say, it's going to be okay, and turn that worry into prayer. That's what we're looking at this evening beginning in verse 17 of chapter 2 and going all the way through to the middle of chapter 3. What we're going to see is Paul wrapping up a long intro in this letter that began with a brief prayer. If you got a Bible open, it's page 159 in the one that's in the seat back in front of you. You can look back at the beginning and see how he weasels in a quick blessing in prayer. He's going to close his long intro with another benediction, a good word, a prayer. But in the middle, and what we're going to see tonight 
is Paul making this lengthy case to tell them about how much he loves them and wants to see them, but he can't. And here's why. It's been a few weeks since we've been in 1 Thessalonians because of what Pastor Kathy said. We celebrated those baptisms, but I'll remind you that when the church was started, they were started with a big uproar. Paul, who wrote this letter, with Silas and Timothy, they came in and they announced that Jesus is king, which sounds kind of awesome. But the problem is he went around a city that had on their money, on their statues, in every other place they looked, Caesar is what? King, emperor, lord, fill in the blank. Caesar was the big dog. So you can imagine when Paul and Silas and Timothy run into a new city and they say, no, 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 Jesus is king, that didn't fly. We see this recorded in the book of Acts, which is what we looked at several weeks ago. So people get upset, they get a mob like you've seen in Frankenstein, probably, I don't know, I wasn't there. But you see this big group of people coming at Paul and Silas and Timothy, and they run them out of town. They beat them up, and they're going to try to kill them. But Paul and these guys sneak out in the middle of the night. So Paul was wise enough to say, i got to tell other people Jesus is king, so he has to leave. So what we're going to read here in just a moment is that Paul was afraid that this young little church that started with an uproar, started with a mob out to get them, he was worried that they weren't going to make it. Is this a legitimate worry? Imagine churches that had about 15 to 20 people, different races, ethnicities, different socioeconomic status, nothing like it in the known world. And they're meeting in somebody's living room, and all around them is people that are out to get them. You'd worry, too, that this little church community you started wasn't going to make it, especially when people were beating down their door, dragging them out into the streets, and trying to put them in jail. Paul was worried, but he had to leave. He had to leave. And let's read and pick up the story as to what happens next and how the only thing Paul could do was to support them in prayer and send someone to them to get a good report back. I'm going to start in verse 17. We're going to read the whole thing. You can stay seated and then we're going to talk about it for a minute. Sound good? This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you For I wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did, again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Chapter 3. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens, We sent Timothy, who's our brother and co-worker in God's service and spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. He's talking about all these people that are opposed to them. For you know quite well that we are destined for them, those trials. Verse 4. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. So for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith 
And I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. Let's keep going in verse 6. But Timothy's just come back to us from you, and he's brought good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. A lot of longing going on, y'all with him? Verse 7. So therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For you, excuse me, for now we really live since you're standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other. And for everyone else, just as ours does for you. And may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. I said I was going to go through the middle of chapter 3. I tricked you. We're going to do all of chapter 3. This is a lengthy intro, but I'll help you understand what we just read, I hope. But first I want to tell you about a time when I was 12 years old and I went to Sam's. I think there was a Sam's on Northwest Highway right on the border of Garland and Dallas. And I was there with my buddy who was also 12 years old. We were there with our moms because we were 12 years old. Okay? So we had two moms and their two sons and we were walking around Sam's Club. Okay? So we, because we were 12, didn't want to go and buy eight pounds of cereal. We went and did our own thing. So we did what 12-year-olds would do in Sam's, and we go and eat all the samples. We play a little hide-and-seek, bumping stuff over. And then we venture over a pretty good ways away from our moms, and we wander all the way up to the front of the store. Then we meet an elderly gentleman who approaches us who's got a big old pallet of stuff, And he says, hey, kids, I need some help. And we say, okay. He goes, I can't get all of this in my car. Would you come with me? I'll give you five bucks if you help me load this stuff into my car. And I see Becky's face contorting. I see John Bronco's face contorting. And my 12-year-old face was not contorting. When he flashed that Lincoln, I was like, yeah, dude, let's do this thing. We're going to go help you load all this stuff into your car. So we walk out into the parking lot. We walk all the way back where he was parked. He pops the trunk, and, he lo- and we load all this stuff into his car. Then he closes the trunk and hands us a $5 bill, and we walk back to the store. In our mind, we thought, whoa, that was easy, awesome. Let me tell you the parallel story of our two mothers who 10 minutes prior to this exchange with this elderly gentleman... We're buying eight pounds of cereal or wherever it was. They look up. They don't see us. Okay, no big deal. We're probably just wandering around. They go to the next aisle. Still don't see us. Next aisle. Still don't see us. Then they start to kind of get a little worried because they're like, I know they're running around, but usually we can hear them and they're near us. And so they finally make their way all the way up to the front because they've not seen us at all. 
Then they step out and they're looking in the parking lot and they see our two heads over near this car. Now, we're walking back. Everything is peachy. We're $5 richer, feeling good. How do you think our moms felt when we approached the entrance of the Sam's Club? Let me tell you, I was not $5 richer. My friend's mom yanked that five and threw it on the ground, and they began to lay into us. And we saw, looking back in retrospect, I see the movement of their faces that went from horror to relief and then to rage. (laughs) In the blink of an eye, like only moms can do. And as a parent now, I look back on that instant, and I am dialoguing with 12-year-old Adam, and I say, 12-year-old Adam says, I mean, we could take this guy. And parent Adam at 32 is saying, no, 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 wait, wait, Um, that was one guy. How about the three guys that would have been kicking it in that van next door? How about those guys, you dumb 12-year-old? And then I'm looking as a parent now, and I'm thinking of my mom and my friend's mom, and I think about what's going through their heads, realizing, hello, they're not here, then worrying, are they anywhere, are they okay, and then fearing, are they gone, and fearing the worst. This is horrible. And so when I read the beginning of this letter, and Paul uses language about how I was orphaned and ripped away from you and snatched away from you, you've got to understand that this wasn't just some itinerant used car salesman that was just trying to get people to buy what he's selling. This is a man that loved these people, that gave his life for these people. And you see it when you read things like, aren't you my joy and my glory and my crown? It's not my sermons and my letters or even my reputation. You people are the lasting fruit and work of my life. I love you. And a few weeks ago, he said, I was like a a mother to you. I was like a father to you. So when he has to sneak out in the middle of the night and leave these band of people who said yes to King Jesus, and he's gone for maybe a month, And the last time he was in Thessalonica, they drug the new Christians out into the street, beat them up, and were going to arrest them. He is probably feeling just a tad bit like my mom at the Sam's Club on Northwest Highway. But you can also imagine that as he's now in the city of Corinth, where then he's writing these letters to the Corinthians that you see just a few books before in your Bible, He had just sent Timothy on a 10-day journey. Dude, i got to find out if my babies are okay. Timothy goes down to Thessalonica on a 10-day journey. He probably spends a week with them. Add another seven days. Now we're up to 17 days. Then we move Timothy to Corinth, another 10-day journey. And remember that he can't tweet or text Paul, hey, they good. 30 days, Paul is agonizing and worried. What does he do while he waits? What do you do while you wait? What are you worried about right now? Even though Pastor Kathy led us in this time of breathing and releasing a lot of the stress, it's probably still creeping up because I've already been talking for 10 minutes and you're starting to drift back into your real life. What are you afraid of? What's coming next week and the week after that? What are you struggling with that you feel tangled up and you just don't know how to get free? Most of the times we live in the worry, 
We live in the struggle. We live in the fear. It's natural. You can't control how you feel. This is why in marriages, one of the hardest things to say is, you know, now you don't, you shouldn't be mad. Well, hello, I am mad. I can't help it. And you saying that makes me more mad. No one can tell you how to feel. You can't control it. But here's the trick. You can control how you respond and move beyond it. But most of us want to live in worry and fear, and we sometimes take the next step, which is to tell a friend or a trusted companion about how we're feeling. That is good. You should do that. If you don't have anyone to do that, let me introduce myself. I'm Adam. I'm a pastor of this church. Kathy, she's a pastor of this church. Bud, he's a pastor of this church. We are here so you can tell us how worried and afraid and how much you're struggling. But hopefully you move out of that worry and you do begin to share it with somebody else. But if I'm honest, I'm a pastor and I still will only get to about here. With my worries and my anxieties, sometimes I'll tell my wife and sometimes I'll tell people in this church. But I've been auditing my life and I'm realizing that it's harder for me to come into the presence of God and be honest with him about all the ways in which I'm not perfect. I still struggle, to be honest with God, about the things I worry about because I'm hearing Jesus say, don't worry about tomorrow. And I feel ashamed that I could come to Jesus and say, I'm worried about this. I think it's because I think Jesus is going to scold me. But I think the truth is, is that even though Jesus is the one that says, do not worry, he's also the one that says, cast all your cares on the Lord through the voice of Paul in another letter. You've got to unload it. You've got to move from the place where it's just me and my worry to even just me and you and my worry, but take it to the next step and turn your worry into prayer into the presence of God because you cannot control what happens to you. You cannot control how you feel, but you can control how you respond. And so for 30 some odd days, Paul was about praying and thinking and holding these people in his heart before the Lord who can do something about it. Because let me tell you, when you are not with these people that you feel unresolved and ripped away from, God is with them. And when you talk to God about these people, these worries, these anxieties, you begin to see his perspective and his work doing what you can't. In our church, we say all the time, do what you can and what? Let God do what you can't. And what we can do is take a step in prayer to him. And I want to remind you that prayer is never wasted effort. Y'all heard the old phrase that worrying is like a rocking chair. Yes? Y'all southern people know what I'm talking about? Worrying is like a rocking chair. It doesn't get you anywhere, but it gives you something to do, right? Let me tell you, prayer is not a rocking chair. Prayer is never wasted effort. Prayer releases kingdom power, and prayer transforms our hearts, and prayer transforms our vision when we begin to see our lives into perspective from God's vantage point that he is not done. So if you are worried, if you are afraid, if you are struggling, let me tell you two things. You are not alone, and God's not done. You are not alone, and God is not done. So why don't you talk to God about it? And we're going to talk about how we might do that at the end of our talk in just a moment. But let's move through what Paul is feeling. And we see more and more the longing, the longing to be with them. Paul says 
in the first chunk, I long to see you face to face. Then that second chunk was, so I sent Timothy and he told me good news. And then that last chunk at the end of chapter three is that benediction on how he prays for these people. That's gonna frame the next few minutes. But I'll remind you of our focus statement tonight, which is simply this, turn your worry into prayer. And here's how we're going to see Paul do it. He turns his worry into prayer for others, but also forward into God's future, where at the very end, after that benediction, he says, I want your love to increase. I want your hearts to be strengthened so that when Jesus comes and makes all things new, we're all going to stand together in fullness. I want you to pray with the reality that that day is just as real, even in the midst of the storm, to turn worry into prayer for others and forward into God's reality when he'll make all things new. Paul was feeling a bit like our moms at Sam's Club. Paul was not immune to worry and you're not immune to worry either. He says he felt orphaned or snatched away. And maybe you haven't been snatched away from people you love, but I'm sure you probably feel like there are some things in your life that are unresolved. Do you have some relationship that may not feel geographically snatched away, but is there some relationship where the bridge is crumbling and there is some unresolved issues here? Paul feels unresolved. He feels the Thessalonians are angry with him. They thought, Paul, you bailed on us. Paul was thinking this. Paul was thinking the tempter, the Satan, the accuser, the evil forces had disbanded him. And he said, I don't want the last thing they think of us to be that I bailed on them and left them to die. He had these unresolved tensions in his heart. That's why you see later in the letter, I was so pumped that Timothy came back and said, no, you've got good memories of us. I just want to kind of turn to the side and maybe just mention this. If you have some unresolved issues, um, we've had unresolved issues with people that we love. And I'll just remind you of this. Forgiveness is a one-way street, okay? If someone has wronged you, Jesus taught us to pray, um, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. Jesus taught us that if someone has wronged you, you're called to forgive them. That is you with a one-way direction to them. You're called to forgive them. And that may not take a one and done. That may take hundreds of times, but you do that in prayer. Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us, and it, with that knowledge of our forgiveness, we're able to extend forgiveness to others because at the foot of the cross, it's a level playing field. They need Jesus just like you need Jesus. We all need forgiveness. It begins to transform your perception and perspective. Forgiveness is a one-way street. Let me tell you this. Reconciliation, however, is a two-way street. You may forgive the person that hurt you, harmed you, wronged you. But you cannot expect that that person will have the same kind of transformation on your timetable as you did. And I'll tell you that if that person, in being in relationship with them, would still hurt you, harm you, wrong you, and they're unwilling to meet you in the middle, reconciliation then is still not possible. But forgiveness is always possible. 
Forgiveness happens when you're a follower of Jesus and the Holy Spirit is within you, calling you to extend the same forgiveness that you've experienced. But reconciliation takes two to tango. But it doesn't mean that you stop praying for reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, God has reconciled the world to himself in Christ Jesus, not counting the sins of the world against them. But he's waiting for these other people to run down the two-way street toward him. Reconciliation is a two-way street. Even if you feel orphaned, snatched away, longing, do what Paul did in prayer where there's nothing else you can do. Release kingdom energy and get that perspective back. So that's what Paul is feeling. That's what we just read, all that longing. But then what does Paul do? Even beyond praying, he sends Timothy. And he's making plans and he's getting his plane tickets I was supposed to go to North Carolina next week, but those plane tickets are done for. Paul was making every plan to go, but just like the power and the limbs in North Carolina, his way was blocked. And he says this interesting thing. Satan blocked our way. I want to say that Paul has an awareness of some counter-Jesus counter-kingdom forces that are at work in the world. Paul doesn't talk about the Satan. That's a word for the adversary. Later, he'll call him in verse 3, the tempter. He doesn't talk about him just a whole lot. What Paul talks about is like the powers and the principalities, these shadowy figures and forces that are just kind of conspiring in this world to make it look a little less like heaven and a little more like hell. But Paul has this awareness that sometimes there are forces opposed to God's life and ministry. But here's the trick. Whenever y'all hear me talk about Satan, some of y'all may go on two different extremes. Here's the first extreme. Extreme over here is this. He's the cartoon devil that is on every one of y'all's shoulder every day, all the time, no matter what, whispering John in your ear, do this, do that. The other extreme is right here still with the cartoon devil. The devil made me do it. I stubbed my toe. That's because that was a devil rock. And it stubbed my toe. And there's the devil he's running right there. I think that's an extreme. We read in the scope of scripture and in our own hearts, we're kind of messed up too. You like to do bad things. I think it's not just Satan all the time every day. You can't just point the finger and always say, that's got to be the devil. But then there's another extreme. And we as enlightened 2018 Americans, we say, no, there ain't no thing as the devil. No way. And if Jesus believed in the devil and talks about the devil, well, we know better than Jesus. We know that Jesus was using constructs of the ancient world and the ancient understanding of these people. And I think that's another extreme where you discount wholesale all the systemic and personal evil in the world. And I think the New Testament and Paul paints a picture somewhere in the middle where when he talks about powers and principalities, y'all sticking with me? There are just some ways in which you can see on the news that the system and things are broken. And that there is a mentality that can happen, whether it's in protests at Charlottesville or something, where there's just something that all of a sudden things get ugly. When you walk into spaces in our city that just feel dark, 
When you walk into places where the addiction and chains of sex trafficking, real and figurative, just it feels wrong. I think the New Testament paints this middle ground that there is a personal and systemic way that is counter to God's kingdom. And Paul says Satan blocked our way. And we don't know what he means by that. But maybe it was through the mob and the death threats and the human opposition. Here's what I want you to know. He may not be behind every corner. And I don't think that he is non-existent. But I do think that there are forces that we cannot see that are opposed to God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And that even involves you. And I think what the enemy loves to do is destroy and divide us and even distract us. In verse 5, if you look back with me, he says, I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. I don't think he's a tiny little dude on your shoulder, but let me tell you how you might have heard this, because here's how I believe I might have heard this. You lose the job. You get the diagnosis, you're short on bills, you are fill in the blank. You are struggling uphill because you've tried to forgive, but there's still no reconciliation. You didn't get the job, you didn't cover this month's bills, you are oppressed, you're persecuted, these people are out to get you, and you begin to hear the whisper that goes something like this. God must not be good as we just sang. Surely the Jesus way is not really worth it. I love that Jesus was baptized. I love it so much that I have a half-sleeve tattoo to remind me of Jesus' baptism. Because before Jesus prayed any public grandiose prayer or preached some incredible sermon or healed one person. He went under the water, he came up, and there was a voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Before he went out and did anything, he just was beloved. What happens next? Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and hears the whisper of someone say, surely... Man, I'll give you something to eat. Surely, I'll give you these kingdoms. Surely, I'll give you recognition. Surely, I'll give you everything you need right here. For 40 days, Jesus fasted and heard the voice of the tempter. And Jesus was the first person in history to resist the tempter. And I believe it's because he had the words of a father who is stronger and loves better, echoing in his head and his heart that says, No, I'm a beloved son. That's who I am. Thank you very much. So I don't need your approval. I don't need your kingdom. I'll wait for what my father has. And even if it takes 40 days or 40 years, would you tune in to his voice and not the voice of the one whispering falsely? What do we do? I think we need to stay together. We need to stay in prayer because in prayer you teach yourself and discipline yourself and create space, which is one of our core practices, to tune in to the voice of the one that calls you beloved. And it puts our life back into proper perspective because the problem is is that we as Americans just really don't have a good theology of suffering. But did you see what Paul wrote? Hey guys, I told you it was gonna come and it did. 
hey guys, I told you that we were destined to this. I want to say that it wasn't that God planned it necessarily. He's going to say, you're destined for it because it's inevitable. Because when you try to go out and turn the other cheek, someone's going to hit back. When you go out and you try to love your enemies, they're not going to love you back. When you go out and you try to just follow Jesus and say yes to him in desires, whether it's money and sex and power, you are swimming upstream of a world that's going to knock you back down. You're destined for struggle. But we don't tell people that before we baptize them. We do try but I don't think we have a real conception of it in this part of the world. The problem is, is that we don't expect suffering to be part of our life with God. And in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, Paul told the Thessalonian church, then he went and told another church this. These are brand new Christians, okay? Here's your Christian AAA membership card. Jesus loves you. God bless you. Here's one of the first things he says. It's on the screen. They preached the gospel in that city, and they won a large number of disciples, okay? You got a huge crowd. What do you want to tell them? They were strengthening the disciples and encouraging them. Two things he sent Timothy to do to Thessalonica. You with me? Hang on. And told them to remain true to the faith. Same thing they told the Thessalonians. Stay strong. Stay strong. Don't be unsettled. Look at what he says. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Well, sign me up and call me Susie. Let's do this. Do you all understand that perhaps we have drifted so far as a church in America because we have this vacation mindset that life with God is a Mercedes Benz and we're rocking and rolling and everything is peachy and cool and if I say it, God's gonna give it and that won't form me or shape me through it and we forget that Jesus even himself had to suffer and be crucified. And Jesus himself said to take up your cross daily and follow me. This is not... Something that happens in course 501 PhD. This is 101. We're just in a vacation mindset on Normandy Beach, June 5th, 1944, until we wake up and realize, oh wait, there's a war zone happening. And I think Paul wants to remind us, you need to expect it. But the reason the tempter is so crucial in this counter-kingdom move is because when it does come, we let our circumstances dictate our reality, not Jesus. And we begin to believe that this surely wasn't part of the plan. I met a gentleman who has left the faith. He was an old friend of mine. And he was telling me his story. And he said that every time something terrible would happen or he would do something terrible, he would just kind of step over the boundary. And he said this, he says, I kept waiting for the lightning bolts to hit. And one of the reasons that he's left the faith is because the lightning bolts never hit. And it was as if he was testing God and saying, you know, if you're really there, wouldn't you punish me? If you're really there, like, is this you that's doing it? And he had this sense that I don't think he's really there. And the more I reflected on that conversation, the more I thought, what if the lightning bolts were never aimed at you from the hand of the Father to begin with? What if the Father was never aiming his lightning bolts at you in the first place? What if the lightning bolts and the storms in our lives aren't always generated by God? What if we could believe that we sometimes make storms on our own 
And if that's the case, when we turn to God, we see that he's actually with us in the valley of the shadow as well. And we can turn our worries, our anxieties, our fears, our struggles back to him. And then all of a sudden, we look up and we realize he's been there the whole time. And he was never aiming the bolts at us to begin with. But suffering is inevitable, but how we respond is our choice. And so we close with this. Paul has been praying for this church, worried about this church, and he gets the report and he says, now I'm truly alive because you're my joy, you're my crown, you're the lasting work, you standing firm and faithful, you are the one that I am doing all of this for. And so then he says, I'm gonna pray for you again. And he says this beautiful benediction. But before that, he wants to remind them, I prayed night and day. I prayed most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. And the question I had was, man, am I praying earnestly? Am I praying night and day for those that are going through the storm? Am I praying most earnestly, which is literally in the original language, even more exceedingly than you can imagine? which is like infinity gugoplex in Greek? Night and day, would you, church, be people praying for those of us in the storm? And would you celebrate and recognize the ways in which God has brought people like Amy Kahn and Aaron and Amanda Stone and Kim who's sitting here and I think right now even Ben and Shauna in the midst of one, on the tail end of one, would we be people praying for, walking with each other? earnestly night and day, even more exceedingly than we could ever ask or imagine? Would we be people that praise something like he prays at the end? May the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he goes on and he says, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. Would our church be known, not because of a sermon or worship or a building or butts and seats, would our church be known in this city and beyond for the love that we have in these walls that pours out into the places like The Rock and into places like these streets, these coffee shops in which you're gathering? Would the world know that Jesus is true because we are living proof of how much his love can transform a community. These are the kinds of things he's praying for. And when you pray, you turn your worries into prayers. You begin to move, I think, gradually from the help me, help me, help me to the deepest ways of praying that's God-focused and forward-looking because one day would you let God's reality, God's visibility pull you into the present that says it may be bad now, but Jesus is coming. He will renew all things and we can love well and be strong to stand today and that day when it comes. Would God's future be visible in our present? May he strengthen our hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This week, how can you pray more deeply and consistently? This week, who are you called to beg and pray for in the middle of the storm? 
this week, how can you move to a deep place looking ahead and imagining that it may be bad now, but faith is the substance of things unseen. In prayer, I want to see healing. I want to see transformation. I want to see new Christians. How are you called to pray God's future visibly in our present? Let's pray now and respond together. Father, we love you and we thank you that even though Satan blocked Paul's way to come to these people, you were always at work bending what was intended for evil back to your good. And because Paul couldn't visit them, he wrote a letter. And he wrote a letter that would be transferred down through the ages and translated so that we could read and be encouraged of a person that lived what he taught, that prayed earnestly and turned his worry into prayer in your loving presence. So would we come with open mouths to proclaim your goodness to us in this place, to those outside of this place, and in your presence, praying and being transformed by your presence and love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Go in peace.